Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Today, we have two special guests with us. Sindra Kirscher is the programs coordinator for the Livestock Conservancy. And one of the programs that she is very involved with is the Shave em to Save em program, which we're really excited to talk about today and learn more about the things that they offer and how they contribute to rare breeds that we're trying to keep alive and going in the United States. And we also have Laura Marie Kramer, who is one of our, she is the national sales representative for Stanley Premium Western Forage. And she is also the owner of LaBella Farm. And she is involved in the program. So we're going to get some really great viewpoints from two different individuals who are involved in the program. And it'll be really great to hear their feedback and thoughts on all this. So welcome both of you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thank you for having us, Katie. Looking forward to talking about one of my favorite things. So, Sindra, what is the mission of the Livestock Conservancy? To save endangered breeds of livestock and poultry. And tell us a little bit more about the Livestock Conservancy and how they pursue that mission. Sure. So, the Livestock Conservancy is a national U.S.-based nonprofit. We've been in operation in the U.S. since the 1970s. And our original mission was to save an endangered breed of cattle. And we have since expanded to working with 11 species of livestock and poultry. And basically what we do is we work to make sure that the breeds that our forefathers raised in this country continue to be available for all of us and generations to come. They have important genetics that we need to conserve, and we do that through working with breed associations, working with farmers, working with universities, and then, of course, our membership base as well, and partners like Stan Lee. Yes. No, that's awesome. And so how many states have producers that are involved with the Livestock Conservancy? Do you guys cover all 50 states? Do you work with countries outside the U.S.? We cover all 50 states. We do have members in all 50 states. We have Shave and Save and participants in all 50 states, as well as Puerto Rico. And we don't provide services outside the U.S., but we do network with other similar organizations like Rare Breeds Survival Trust in the UK and Rare Breeds Canada. And there are other organizations as well that we that we network with to make sure that the breeds that we share that are on our turf as well as their turf that, you know, we share information and, and resources. Right. That's excellent. That's good that you kind of have those partnerships. Laura Marie, how long have you been involved with and how did you get involved with the Livestock Conservancy? So I've been involved with the Livestock Conservancy for about 10 years now, and it's actually kind of a funny story. Livestock Conservancy members are super excited to share information about the Livestock Conservancy. And I was speaking at an event for Stanley Premium Western Forage on 
courses and a member came up to me and saw a picture of my chickens on my laptop and stopped me to talk to me about my rare breed chickens that I had and was like, you have to join the Livestock Conservancy. She dug through her purse, pulled out this wrinkled pamphlet and handed it to me. (laughs) That's so awesome. And so what breeds do you work with that are technically rare breeds? So my hog island sheep is the main rare breed that I work with. I've had a few different breeds of rare poultry, but I don't breed rare poultry. I just happen to have laying hens that were rare breeds. Yes. So you mentioned hog island sheep, and that's kind of interesting, their name. Can you explain to everyone, how did the hog island sheep get their name? So hog island sheep are named after Hog Island, Virginia, which is where the breed originated. Hog Island, Virginia was a colony during our colonial days, and the colonists brought sheep to the colony. After some hurricanes, they abandoned the island and left the sheep behind, and they've kind of developed into their own breed. That's so interesting. And Sindra, so you talked about there are 11 species on your guys' list that you work with. I was kind of looking, I know we talked about this a little bit before, but at your priority list, the Highland cattle were one of the breeds that was on it, but you guys have helped make them more established. And I think for anyone who's anyone, they've become quite iconic, I feel like, in kind of the rural world of just... You know, you see them on mugs everywhere. You see them on shirts, the pictures, the artwork, which is so neat. But that was one of the braids that you guys helped basically get off that list, right? Correct. Yeah. The Highland cattle was on our conservation priority list for a number of years. And it, it did graduate before I joined the Livestock Conservancy. I know that we didn't start publicizing it on t-shirts and mugs ourselves, somebody must have fallen in love with it. And and thankfully that, you know, that helped. But certainly our our work with trying to spread the the good word about the breed has contributed to its graduation as well. Absolutely. But I think that that stemmed from from the work that you guys did and just how popular that they've kind of become. I know when I see anybody posting like in buy sell trades or what have you and you see a highland come up people go crazy they're adorable yeah they are <laughs> they're very cute cattle Cinder, another breed that i happen to notice that was on there is the texas longhorn mm-hmm. i actually did not know that they were on that list i didn't know that they were that rare so the texas longhorn is actually a pretty well-known cattle yeah and that name is a bit of a misnomer mm-hmm. because there there are a lot of longhorned crossbreeds that are being called by the name Texas Longhorn, and they are not pure Texas Longhorns. That's interesting. I guess I just never thought about the fact that they would be on that list. But and I'm asking all these questions, of course, on cattle because I grew up on a small cattle ranch, and so I'm most familiar with cattle. So it's just kind of intriguing to me to see some of these breeds that. You know, growing up learning about them in ag classes and things like that and just making these connections and realizations of people think about extinction more, I think, with specific species and not so much from a perspective of breeds. But it's important because there are a lot of things that these animals offer are just who we are, our history and and everything. So... Laura Murray, what would you say has been your most challenging experience with raising your hog island sheep? 
You know, hog island sheep are very, very easy to raise, so I wouldn't say there's any huge challenges. There's two things that can be a little tough. One is finding other breeders to exchange breeding stock with, but the Livestock Conservancy is great because of they have that breeder directory, so we can reach out to each other and exchange rams. It just sometimes it's a long distance that we have to drive to each other to swap rams and get some new genetics into the gene pools on our farms. And then lambing season, which I am five Five days away from the start of my lambing season is always a fun little challenge. You know, these ewes don't give you a date and time that they're going to lamb. So it's just kind of waiting for them to decide what they're going to do. And it's a lot of very late nights and you hope everything goes smooth. But, you know, there's occasionally those triplets that get tangled up. So lambing season definitely brings its own challenges. Well, and no pun intended, but lambing can be very labor intensive work. <laughs> Sheep in general, and it's probably because they tend to have more twins and triplets and things like that, but definitely a little bit more difficult than some like cattle. So, yeah, we at the Hog Island Sheep almost always have twins or triplets. Nice. Well, I guess in that sense, it's good that they have more as long as they can take care of them and everything because that gives you the opportunity to kind of help expand that breed a little bit better. So that's great. How many do you have planning to lamb this year, Lormory? I have eight getting ready to lamb and they're all lambing in a 15 day window. Oh, wow. I had a very busy ram. Wow. Yep. (laughs) He did his job. (laughs) He did his job well. (laughs) Sidra, I saw that the Livestock Conservancy, they've been serving rare heritage breeds for has it been close to almost 45 years now? Mm-hmm. And we're going to have our 45 year anniversary this year. Oh, that's exciting. So, the Livestock Conservancy, they've been serving rare heritage breeds for 44 years now. And you guys have been able to have a number of those breeds removed off of that list. So, what would you say has largely contributed to saving a lot of these breeds? Well, certainly the farmers like Laura Marie. I mean, graduating off the Livestock Conservancy's seed conservation priority list is our goal for all of these breeds, mm-hmm. but we certainly can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. It's the folks that, that get interested in these breeds and find the value in the various qualities and, and performance of them that really do the job. You know, it's the breed associations, it's the farmers. We work very hard to support them so that they can do the work of, of raising these breeds. And just like Laura Marie's doing this year, you know, she's got eight ewes that are going to make babies, possibly two or three each. So she's who's doing it. You know, we certainly have great support, our sponsors and our donors. We can't do the work that we do without them and our members. Yes, that's excellent. How did the Shave em to Save em program get started and how did it come about? So one of the challenges of saving rare breeds is getting folks interested in them. And unless animals are high performing, a lot of farmers don't have an interest in getting involved. And so we need to figure out with sheep specifically how to get more farmers interested. And the interesting thing about the 23 breeds of sheep that are on our conservation priority list is their coats, their wool, are all different. They have different colors, different patterns, different lengths, different textures, different handles to them. You know, some are very downy and squishy and some are very long and and have more strength to them. 
So because of the, the variability of them, they also have different uses. And so we realized that the way to really get these sheep more well-known is to share the, the unique qualities of their fiber. And so actually it was one of our board members and donors who sat down with some of the Livestock Conservancy staff and probably over the course of a year or two started tossing this ball back and forth, what can we do? And the idea for the program, for the passport program, was developed. And Shave Em, Save Em name eventually came along after that. That's awesome. So how many fiber artists and producers do you have that are involved in the Shave Em to Save Em program? So there are over 3,500 folks involved in the program. And that's just folks who are, are enrolled. In our Facebook group, we have a Shave Em, Save Em Facebook group. There are, I think, currently... 6,700 folks involved in that group. Yeah. And so some of them are, are participating just virtually. You know, they, they didn't buy the passport, you know, shave to save them is only available in the U S and we've had a lot of interest from folks in other countries. And so I think a a percentage of the folks that are following along in the Facebook group are actually overseas. So they're, they're buying the fiber, they're spinning it themselves, making projects with it and, and learning. They just don't have the passport. Which I still think is wonderful because the goal is not to sell the passport. The goal is to raise awareness about the sheep and the fiber. Right. And that's that's working. That's excellent. So explain to us a little bit about how the passport stamps work in coordination between the artists and the producers and how they have to work together to kind of make that work. Sure. So as you said, there are fiber artists and fiber providers that enroll in the program. And a fiber artist enrolls for a one-time fee of $15. And when they enroll, I send them a passport and a pin. And inside the passport, there are 23 pages with breed names at the top. And I think origin, country of origin, so a little bit of history on the breed. And then there's a blank space on that page where when they purchase fiber from a fiber provider, the fiber provider sells them the wool, whether it's rare wool, whether it's yarn or something in between. And with that order, they also ship them a sticker. And on that sticker, they list their farm name, the date that they sold the fiber, and then that goes into the passport on the corresponding page. So if I brought fiber from Laura Marie, she would send me the fiber, minimum of four ounces Mm -hmm. to qualify for the program, and a sticker. And I would slap that sticker in my passport, and then I would make something with the fiber. That's awesome. And then when folks make five, they finish five projects, 10 projects, or 15 projects, they get to submit those photos to me for rewards. That's awesome. How neat. And Laura Marie, you obviously participate as a producer. How often do you need to have your hog island sheep shorn? Because there are some breeds that can naturally shed their wool, but not the hog island sheep. So hog island sheep actually will shed if you don't shear them, but I do shear them. Uh, If you saw them in the summer months, they're quite hot and miserable. Mm -hmm. So I do shear them normally in the April timeframe. I have a professional shearer come out. It takes me way too long and she can do my entire flock in under an hour. And I would be there for hours doing one sheep. So April is when I will be shearing and then I sell Mm -hmm. my wool through the Shave Them to Save Them program. And actually all of my wool is pre-sold this year. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. And for those who aren't familiar with wool production, Sandra kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but there are different fiber types for different end 
products. Can you share with us a little bit more about some of the differences there and what products are made from different types of wool? Sure. So of the 23 breeds, three of them are hair sheep and they are self-shedding for the most part. And those are a little bit more of a challenge for fiber artists to use. But folks are doing some really, there's actually an artist in New York that's done some beautiful felting with the Barbados Black Belly and the St. Croix and the Wiltshire Horn. And folks have actually spun that as well. What they've done with it beyond that, I'm not really sure. But the 20 remaining breeds have beautiful wool with beautiful qualities. And some of the breeds are next to skin soft. You would definitely want to use it for a little baby sweater. And I'm referring to... Well, I'm referring to more than one breed. Of course, as Laura Marie knows, the age of the animal has a lot to do with the quality of its fiber as well. So a lamb's coat is going to be softer than than a mature ewes. But the, the breeds that I think of for next to skin are going to be as varied and as different as Rommeldale CVM to Navajo Churro. The undercoat of Navajo Churro can be extremely soft, even though that breed itself is considered of a more durable rug breed. That's awesome. It's amazing how much variety can come from essentially one product. And like you talked about, it could vary based on species, but depending on age of the animal as well, it just so much can be made from from that simple raw product. Laura Marie, what fiber artists have you worked with and what are some of the end products that they have actually made from your wool? So it has been a really unique experience getting to work with these fiber artists and meet them. And I have I have a wide array of fiber artists. A lot of them do felting. I've had purses made. I felt myself and I did very cute little sheep Christmas ornaments for my family this year. I've had spinners come all the way out to oh, look nice. at their sheep and meet their ewe that they were getting wool from and then have spun that. Hog Island is a coarser wool, so it's not good for next to the skin. So it's typically used a lot for like outerwear or like purses or some type of felting project. I've had wool bought by the New York Fashion Institute. So it's been, a, it's been pretty cool to see what people come up with to do with my wool. That's really neat. I mean, and just thinking about this program, the whole idea and the concept of it is just, it's brilliant, really, because it's made it such a fun, almost like a game, but like a exciting project for people to, you know, continually work on and improve their craft. But at the same time, they're working to help all these rare breeds, which is really excellent. So I really, really love this whole Shave Them to Save Them program and how it supports these rare breeds. Cinder, what resources does the Livestock Conservancy and the Shave Them to Save Them program offer to its members? So that's a great question and quite a bit. We've developed quite a few resources over the first three years of the program. And initially, I didn't mention this, Katie, but initially the program was developed on a trial basis. We really thought we would just run it for three years but it has become so popular that we've eliminated that end date and we see no end to this program. We hope it continues quite indefinitely. But as far as resources, on the Shave Em to Save Em webpage, which is rarewool.org, we have downloadable brochures, downloadable conservation priority lists, of course, the rules, flyers that fiber providers can print and share either at fiber festivals or at fiber guild meetings. They can share it when they sell fiber. And most recently, Deborah Robeson, who is a well-known fiber arts educator, she created 23 fiber profiles 
for the program. And so each one of those profiles has a photo of the sheep. It has a little bit of background about the history of the breed, but then she goes in depth into the individual qualities of each of those breeds and how they're best prepared. Because some breeds you want to, you want to card the fiber. Some breeds it's better to comb the fiber. So she talks about that. She shows photos of finished yarn as well as scoured locks. And she actually also gives some advice on what the best uses for each one of those breeds are. That's excellent. So that's, yeah, we just launched those at the beginning of the year and we're super excited about those. And those are available for free download on the website. That's awesome. And you guys, I mean, aside from the fact, too, of the networking system that you've created to connect everyone. So if somebody was wanting to get involved, it would be they just need to connect with you, really, to be able to make those connections. Because like you said, Laura Marie, one of the challenges you mentioned was just, you know, it could be hard trying to find, especially if you're wanting to breed any of them, trying to, to find others to purchase from and work with. And so... That networking aspect, I think, is probably pretty critical for you guys. Yeah, the being able to network with the other livestock producers and then also being able to network with the fiber artists has really made the value of the wool go up and has made a market for these sheep. That's excellent. What are some of the specific resources that have been beneficial for your farm, Lormarie? Well, actually, when I was looking for a breed of sheep, I actually contacted the Livestock Conservancy and I let them know that I was looking to breed sheep and I was looking for a heritage breed. And I asked them if they could recommend one that they thought I should get involved with. And they actually pointed me in the direction of Hog Island. They got me connected with Mount George Washington's Mount Vernon, where I got my initial breeding stock from. And I frequently pick up rams from them to use. Probably every two to three breeding seasons, I'll get a ram from them just for one breeding season to use to keep the genetics mixed up in my flock a little bit. And they were just really great on being able to make that connection. And they also house our breed registry for us. So when I have a new lamb born on my farm, all the information goes to Livestock Conservancy and they house that registration for us. That's awesome. That sounds like wonderful support. Katie, something else that's available to folks like Laura Marie, if they're just, you know, first looking for the type of, whether it's chickens or ducks or cattle or pigs or sheep, are our, our breed profiles on our website. Mm-hmm. So every breed that's listed on our conservation priority list, there is a, a breed profile on our website that folks can learn about its history, its temperament, potential size, what its uses are. They're very, very helpful for folks who are looking to get into any kind of heritage breed. It's how I picked my chickens initially. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. And I was just thinking about because while we have variety in our listeners of species that, you know, in general that they raise and work with, Horses is definitely the most common. And so it made me think about, I wanted to look and see some of the horses that you guys actually happen to have on your list, because you have some that are kind of at a critical level and some that are threatened. What is the difference between the critical and threatened level? So any critical breeds on our conservation priority list have fewer than 200 annual registrations in the United States per year and an estimated global population of less than 500. So those are really small numbers. And that is the highest, kind of the most important category to conserve on our conservation priority list. And then the next category is the threatened category. 
And those breeds have fewer than 1,000 annual registrations. So more than 200, but fewer than 1,000 in the United States. And an estimated global population of less than 5,000. So we're, we're talking about small numbers. Yeah, that, I mean, that really, if you think about it on the grand scale of animal ownership and just how many of these, like, not necessarily braids, but just the species in general exist. And that is such a finite number there. And I noticed the Morgan horses on there as listed as critical. So it's just super interesting. So for anybody that, you know, kind of wants to check it out and even just kind of peruse and see, you know, what breeds and of species are on this list, just to learn a little bit more, maybe it's something that you feel like you could get involved in. But if nothing else, maybe, maybe you can't put forth the amount of work it might take to to own and breed the animals. I'm sure there are other ways that that they can support the program and and be a part and be involved to kind of help these rare breeds. So, Laura Marie, what do you feel like has been your favorite part about working with the Shave 'em to Save 'em program? Oh, you know, it's been a really fun opportunity to network with new people. I get such a kick out of it when I have a fiber artist drive 12 hours to come meet the sheep she's going to get the wool off of. And it's a, it's a really interesting process to get to meet these fiber artists, but it's really helped make breeding sheep be more profitable for me and saving these. And it's given me an outlet for the wool because there is not a, there's not a home on the open wool market for Hog Island sheep wool. So it really gave me an outlet to be able to do something with the wool to help make breeding them profitable. Right. And I, if I remember right, Sandra, when we've talked about this before, that whole concept behind this program was came from putting the animals back to work to be, be able to ensure their prosperity, which is so true, right? I mean, it's it's kind of unfortunate that that's how it works, but you guys have found such a wonderful way to do that and make it successful. I mean, clearly, if you only planned on doing it for a few years and it's grown so well and made all these wonderful connections between not only between producers, but when you think about the, I guess, the dynamic between producers and fiber artists, how cool is that? I just think that's probably so wonderful. And, and Laura Marie talking about that you had somebody drive 12 hours to come and meet you. Yeah, she came 12 hours down to my farm the day after shearing because she wanted to pick up the wool. She didn't want it mailed to her and she wanted to see the sheep that her wool came off of. And she hung out in the field and photographed. Uh, she got wool off of, I believe, Dolly. And she photographed Dolly. And when she finished her project, she yeah. posted pictures of her and Dolly and her finished yarn. She actually spun the wool into yarn. That's so neat. I bet that you just have created such wonderful relationships that way. It's really neat to see how many people now come back year after year to buy again. I have a very long waiting list for my wool, but I do have a few of my early Shave em to Save em customers that have become repeat customers that always get top priority. And I have one that makes these very interesting full-size rugs out of each fleece and she felts the entire thing into a rug. And she always likes to buy, some of mine have spots. So it's really interesting because when she felts it, you can see that spot and I can identify, oh, that came off of Elizabeth. That is so cool. Wow. That's awesome. Laura Marie, what would you say to someone who might be interested in getting involved with some of these rare breeds? Do you have 
any advice or words of inspiration as to maybe why they should make the leap to get involved as a producer? Yeah, I sure do. So the first thing I would recommend doing is taking a look at the Livestock Conservancy's list, seeing what breeds interest you, but not necessarily going with the breed that interests you the most, but going with a breed that you have going to have a network of producers near you that you can easily share breeding stock back and forth with and that you can get advice from and that you can network with. I think that is one of the biggest challenges is I will sometimes get somebody in California contact me about wanting to buy breeding stock and I'm all the way over in Delaware and it's just a big challenge with the distance. So I would definitely recommend taking a look at the breeder list and trying to pick a breed that has other breeders close to you. Excellent. And Sindra, for any that are listening who may not have the means, like like we just talked about, they may not be able to raise livestock or any of these specific breeds, but maybe they still want to get involved. What can they do to help? And how can we help continue this program, help its growth, and just to see these breeds thrive? Sure. So there's a, there's a couple of ways that folks can get involved in saving rare breeds. And like we talked about, these breeds all have jobs. And a lot of those jobs, although we're talking fiber today, a lot of those jobs involve being on the dinner plate or the breakfast plate. And so searching out folks who raise these breeds and sell their eggs, their feathers for tying fishing flies or, you know, their, their actual meat, that's the best way to support these breeds and the continuance of the availability of those breeds is to support the farmers directly. Another way to support it is to support our work, our research, and our support of farmers and lives, uh, breed associations. And you can do that through membership or through donation or if you have a business through sponsorship. So there's a lots of different opportunities available on our website. Membership is as low as $25 for an online, you know, a digital membership. And for a print version of our newsletter, our quarterly newsletter, and our annual breeders directory, we also have a $45 annual membership. And there are some other variations of membership where you can donate a few dollars a month and, and be involved as well. So there's certainly lots of opportunity. I know that I buy, I buy Piney Woods cattle locally, not the cattle themselves, but the meat from a local farmer. So not only am I an employee and a livestock conservancy member, but I'm also buying both my meat and my eggs from local farmers who are raising these conservation breeds. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Laura Marie and Sandra. I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing with us your perspectives on the Livestock Conservancy, the Shave Them to Save Them program, and just Laura Marie, especially your experiences that you have from the producer side. It's just been really wonderful to learn a lot more about these rare breeds. I know when you first approached me about it, Laura Marie, this was an eye opener for me. And I feel like I've learned so much in something that I didn't. It makes me wonder how many people don't realize, you know, how many of these breeds are kind of at a critical level, because I know that I, I wasn't aware of it. But you guys are doing some wonderful work to kind of kind of promote the the livelihoods of the breeds and, and everything. So it's wonderful. Thanks, Katie. All right. And for our listeners, thank you so much for being on with us today. If you have any topic ideas, things that you want to learn about, hear about, please reach out to us at podcast at stanleyforage.com. And thank you again. It was so nice to have you both here and join us.
Thank you, Katie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.